Hey friends, this is John White with Luke 10, and this is uh, episode three in Stories from the Revolution. Um, we're drawing the title, The Idea of Revolution, from a book published by George Barna, church researcher, back in uh, 2005, <clears throat> and sharing different quotes from that book. Here's one for this week. Very short quote. He said, the revolution is about recognizing that we are not called to go to church. We are called to be the church. Um, I think that's a great summary of, of what this is all about. So, so far in episode one, we did a look at what's going on spiritually in America and other places too, I think, from the 30,000 foot uh, view. We want to be able to see the whole forest and not just a few trees. And we defined revolution as a major paradigm shift in the way people are thinking about church and doing church and being church. That was episode one. Episode two, we talked about the old paradigm of church. Uh, what was it like before? And we're looking at three elements. Uh, one is that the old paradigm was building-based. Secondly, program-centric. And third, pastor-led. So in this episode, I want to talk about the new paradigm of church. What is the new thing that, that God is doing? And um, by way of introduction, I want to share with you two equations. Now, I sometimes facetiously say to people that these are very complicated. So take out your, your paper and pencil and get ready to take extensive notes on these two equations that I think describe uh, almost everything you need to know about church from a biblical point of view. All right, here's the first one. Are you ready? In scripture, it is true that church equals family. That's the first equation. Pretty simple. This is simply expression of the fact that every church mentioned in the New Testament met in a home and functioned like a small spiritual family. And that this was true for at, at least up until the early 300s. So church equals family. Um, lots of passages on this. Acts 2.46 says they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Well, who, who were these people that were meeting in homes? Well, right before that, it says that there were 3,000 people who were added to their number. Where were they meeting? They were meeting in homes. And it, it's possible that there were as many as 150, maybe even more, house churches in Jerusalem to contain that number of people. Romans 16.4, Paul says, greet the church that meets in Priscilla and Aquila's house. Uh, Colossians 4.16, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Possible that Nympha was the the leader of that house church. Uh, Philemon uh, chapter 1, verse 2, to Apphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church that meets in your home. Uh, again, addressing this to Philemon. There are lots of other examples, but that's just a sampling of uh, churches that, that met in homes. That was the normal place for uh, churches to meet in Scripture. <clears throat> so, from the very uh, beginnings of my Christian life, this statement has been important to me. Scripture is our authoritative guide for faith and practice. Uh, 
in my decades of experience in the church as pastor and in different contexts, we gave a lot of attention to the idea of Scripture as our authoritative guide for our faith, for our belief, for our theology. And I totally believe that. But what it seems to me was often overlooked was the idea of Scripture as our authoritative guide for practice, the practice of doing church. The practice of church in the New Testament was that every church met met in a home and functioned like a small spiritual family. And I've, I've become convinced that it's not because they were poor, they couldn't afford a building, or because there were persecutions going on, there were sporadic persecutions, but I've come to believe that there are significant theological reasons why uh, in the New Testament, the value was for church to function like family and to often meet in homes. Church equals family. One of the books that's had a big impact on me, a great resource in this area, came out in about 2004, I think it was. Here's the title of the book, House Church and Mission, colon, The Importance of Household Structures in Early Christianity by Roger Gehring. One of these days, I'm going to do a whole podcast on this book because I think it's so incredibly significant. But a little bit of background on the book. So my understanding, I've never met Roger. I talked to him on the phone once. But my understanding of the book is that Roger was working uh, with Campus Crusade for Christ in Germany. This is back in probably the 1990s. And somebody said, um, you know, you really ought to go to seminary. I think you'd find that valuable. And he did. And he eventually came to a place where he had to write a, um, a doctoral thesis. And he wasn't sure what to write it on. So his advisor said, why don't you write it on the significance of the physical location of church in the New Testament? This is probably a new idea for Roger. So he began to research that. And as you would for a, a, a thesis, he read everything that there was written on this topic of where churches actually met when they met in the New Testament. And what he discovered was a very interesting thing. Up until 1980, there was almost nothing written on the subject. Nobody had really thought about where the churches met and what the significance of that was. But beginning in 1980, there were apparently five significant um, articles or, or books that came out on this subject. There was sort of an explosion of interest in this area. And all of them were saying pretty much the same thing. And that is that the physical location of church, that is the household, um, was very significant in shaping what churches did, how they functioned, and that they weren't just sort of a random thing, but there was, there was real uh, important theological reasons for this. Here's one quote from Gehring's book, and he's actually uh, quoting another author here. He says, uh, for Verkler, this concept of church as the household of God, and that phrase is used in 1 Timothy 3.15, the household of God, incorporates two aspects. First, that the house or the family is the fundamental unit of the church. Let that soak in a little bit. The house or the family is the fundamental unit of the church. And then secondly, that the church is a social structure patterned after the household. 
So again, we're back to this basic definition, first definition, first equation, church in the New Testament equals family. The second equation follows on that, and it's also very complicated, right? And the second equation is leaders in the New Testament equal parents, spiritual parents, spiritual moms and dads. And I always have to say in the best sense of the word, you know, all of us have had parents, you know, some were uh, better than others, healthier than others. But we all intuitively know what really good parents look like and what really good families look like. But leaders were um, basically spiritual moms and dads in the New Testament. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So meeting at home isn't the most important element, um, but many, many of the churches, the, the new paradigm of churches do meet in homes, but they can meet other places. They might meet in a coffee shop or a restaurant or in a park. Um, there's all kinds of flexibility. A church building, of which, again, there's no, no mention in the New Testament that any church met in a specific church building, except uh, in, the, in Acts 2, they met uh, in the temple at times, in the temple courts. But beyond that, there's just, there, there's nothing that says, you know, and when the, the gospel came to Philippi, they set about building a church building, just none of that. So uh, I want to go back to these three um, elements, three places where the paradigm is shifting. Uh, the old paradigm is, again, building-based. The new paradigm is primarily home-based. So church uh, begins often, or now to, to meet often in a home, a household, but it's not restricted to that. In Luke 10, we often describe a church, this is our phrase, a vibrant family of Jesus. Again, I could do a whole podcast on that. Church is family, but it's a family of Jesus. It means that Jesus is the leader of this church, and it's vibrant. That word means pulsing with life. Isn't that, that the kind of church that you'd like to go to? One of the things that is also true is that thinking of church this way doesn't divide the family. How often in my background, you know, the whole family would go to church and, you know, the junior high kids would go over here and the little kids would go over here and the, you know, older people would go over here. And, and so church often would divide family. In this case, it doesn't. It unites the idea of home with church. There are lots of benefits of uh, church in the home. One is expense. It's no longer necessary to, to rent a building, uh, build a building, have a pipe organ, have all those things that we thought were necessary parts of church. But again, there's no New Testament basis of those. Um, you don't need to have a big staff. You don't need to, do, uh, to spend millions of dollars on a new parking lot, all the things that churches often have to do. So the financial end of things is a definite benefit. Another benefit is multiplication. So it's, it's real easy to start a new house church um, because they're small. They reproduce really easily. Somebody, and this is a great picture, somebody suggested that there are two kinds of churches. There are elephant churches and rabbit churches, and that we need both kinds, and I agree with that. An elephant church is kind of the bigger traditional church. Maybe it's 100 people. Maybe it's 1,000 people. Maybe it's 5,000 people. Those are elephant churches. House churches are like a rabbit. They're like rabbit churches. So this person did some math to talk about multiplication. He said, imagine you take two elephants, male and female, put them in a room, wait three years. How many elephants will you have at the end of that time? Well, the answer is you'll have three 
So multiplication uh, for elephants is slow. Um, a typical litter is like one elephant. Um, elephants are only fertile periodically. The gestation period is so long. And so at the end of three years, you would have uh, three elephants. Um, on the other hand, if you do rabbits, put two rabbits, male and female, uh, in a room, and you wait uh, several years, what do you have? Well, typical litter is like seven rabbits in a litter. Rabbits are almost continually fertile. Their gestation period is very short. And you do the multiplication, it's something like 240 million rabbits at the end of three years. The point of that is that let's plant more big churches if we can do that. But the new paradigm is going to be focusing, I think, on rabbit churches, which multiply really easily and, and really quickly. Um, Robert Banks, a church historian, made this comment. He said, the early church conquered the Roman Empire one household at a time. So these really small reproducing elements um, basically took over the Roman Empire. So that by the year 300, 10% of the Roman Empire, probably six million people had become Christians and were meeting in homes. The Chinese house church movement has a motto, which I love. Their motto is this, every home a church, every church building a training center. I think of that one idea, every home a church, if that ever caught on among Christians in America or any country, if people begin to take that seriously, we could see revival happen like you know, in a month. It would be incredible. Every home a church. So that's the first element of the new paradigm, that no longer are churches going to be building-based, although there, there may be a place for buildings, but they will be primarily home-based. The second element of the new paradigm, remember the old element is program-centric, um, and this one is going to be different than that. Let me talk about that. In the old paradigm, you go to church, and basically, you're a spectator. Um, you watch the performance up on stage, and you're encouraged to stand and sing along with people and, and all the rest. But um, the bigger the church is, the less you can really do of anything that's participatory. What's the alternative? Well, I want to share with you a verse that I discovered. I was on staff of a mega church when I found this verse. I'd always been interested in what the early church was like. So Acts 2, the end of Acts 2 was something we'd studied a lot. But I was always like, what, what did the church, if you'd actually gone to a church at Priscilla and Aquila's house, what exactly would you have seen? And I found this verse and I was astonished realizing that I had never in all my years of being a Christian, being a pastor, going to summer, seminary, never heard anybody preach or teach on this verse. The verse is 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Here's what it says. Paul says, when you come together, brothers, and the, the Greek construction there implies when you do church, when you come together, brothers, here's what he says. Everyone has a hymn, um, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, interpretation. Let all these things be done for the edification of the church. And, and the word that just floored me there that it just grabbed a hold of me was the word everyone. When you come together, brothers, everyone has a word of instruction, a hymn, and so on. Everyone, really? Implication is that New Testament church was participatory 
in nature. Everybody contributed, almost like a spiritual potluck. Everybody brought something to the table. Everybody participated and ate from what had had been brought. Um, again, I was on staff of a megachurch. There's no way that we could do that kind of thing. Uh, we had 900 or 1,000 people in every service, and, and participation simply was, was not possible. I think this fits really well with Ephesians 4.7. This is where Paul says, uh, to each one is given grace as Christ has apportioned it. Every believer has been given grace. Um, the, this divine strength or insight that each one has and that all are needed. And so when you come together for church in the New Testament, in the new paradigm, it's a place where everybody gets to utilize their grace. And it's the, it's the blending together of all of those different Christ-apportioned expressions of grace that make church what it really can be. Sometimes we call church an ecosystem of grace. Isn't that a wonderful picture? You know, an ecosystem with different plants and animals all working together in a synchronized kind of way. Again, we'll do a whole podcast to unpack that one of these days. So the difference, programmatic church, which is mainly spectator-oriented, uh, versus participatory church, which is, I think, the new paradigm. Everybody gets to play. That's pretty cool. Everybody has a voice. The third element of the new paradigm, remember the old paradigm was pastor-led. Um, so what I want to say here is the new paradigm is Jesus-led. But I have to explain this. Back when I was a pastor in a traditional church, we always said that Jesus is the head of the church. But now we say is Jesus is the head of the church. And then we kind of say, no, really, Jesus is the head of the church, which means he brings the agenda. So when we, in Luke 10, train people on how to do, how to do church, part of it is right there in church, we take time to listen to Jesus. And we ask this question. So Jesus, what do you want to say to this church, this group of people today? What Jesus brings the agenda, that's the critical concept. So there are some people that are doing house church and it's, you know, it's honey, I shrunk the church. It's just the, uh, the stuff in, in the old paradigm shrunk down into a home. Sometimes it's even a Bible study. So there's more participation there. But what if we take seriously the idea of what scripture says, whenever even two or three meet in his name, he's present. What does that really mean that Jesus is present? I pictured one day, you know, we're having house church and a knock comes on the door. We open the door. It's actually Jesus physically present there. And he comes in. What would we do? Well, I think the first thing we would do is we'd probably fall on our faces. And the next thing we'd do, I think we would probably say to him, so Jesus, this is your church. What do you want us to do today? What we found is that when we began to do that, we began every time we meet to take some time, maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever, to listen to Jesus and ask that question. And everybody listens on this. And we write down what comes to mind. What we found was all of the elements of church, that as a pastor, it was my responsibility to see that they happen. We need to have worship. We need to have instruction. We need to have community and fellowship. We need to have mission and outreach, all of those things. They all grew spontaneously out of listening. 
it was amazing. It's like Jesus really was pretty good at leading church. So that's the difference. Now, does that mean there's no human leadership at all? No, it doesn't. Because we're back again to that second equation. Leaders equal spiritual moms and dads under the headship of Jesus. So um, sometimes I say that the best book on, on spiritual leadership, church leadership, is a book called Parenting with Love and Logic, Foster Klein and Jim Fay. It has nothing to do with church leadership. It has to do with parenting. But the principles in that, in that book are brilliant and very simple. But in terms of what does it mean to be a mom and a dad? What does it mean to be a spiritual mom and dad? All of those things continue to apply. This is what I think we see illustrated with uh, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says to the Thessalonians, we became like a mother to you. So here's a man and an apostolic team saying we were like a mother to you. And he talks about that gentle and caring, like a nursing mother even. And then a couple of verses later, he says, we became like a father to you. So this is the paradigm of what leadership looks. If church is family, it stands to reason that um, the leaders would function as spiritual moms and dads in the best sense of the word. Again, we'll have podcasts in the future where we'll unpack that some more. What does it look like to be a spiritual mom and dad? This is part of what we're committed to in Luke 10. It's one of our five core values is training and supporting uh, spiritual moms and dads. So that's a that's a quick picture of what we think the new paradigm looks like. As we've said, there's a massive spiritual revolution underway. And one of the central elements has to do with the paradigm of church. Some people have been so wounded and so hurt by church, they don't even want to use the word church anymore. Let's, let's have nothing to do with that. What we want to say is rather than being done with it, we want to transform it. We want to recapture it. And, and return to what the New, New Testament picture of church was like. Um, uh, you know, I, if we'd said the word church to Jesus, to Paul, to Peter, what was the picture that came to their mind? We think it's it's a really healthy spiritual family and, and probably an extended family. It's not just, you know, mom and dad and the kids, but it could be aunts and uncles, next door neighbors. So it's an ex- extended spiritual family. If the new paradigm means that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out again amongst us, uh, that's the new wine. Uh, we need a new wineskin for the Spirit to be contained uh, that's being poured out. I want to also say that I think in the revolution that's underway that there are going to be a lot of streams. Luke 10 is only one. But if your heart resonates with what you hear here in this podcast, um, I just want to invite you to, to come and join us um, in these episodes in the future. I'll continue to unpack what we're learning about the new paradigm. Sometimes I say the new old paradigm, um, but information isn't enough. Just listening to these podcasts casts isn't enough. Um, you need to have community. You need to have people to travel with. And the Luke 10 community might be that for you. The door into the Luke 10 community is a, is a five-week course. It can be done online. Uh, we use Zoom calls a lot, which we call Church 101. Um, if this is interesting to you, go to the, the Luke 10 website. So it's lk10.com. Scroll down there uh, to number three and sign up for Church 101. In the meantime, uh, I'd like to hear from you. 
Um, are you one of the duns? Have, have you already left church? Why did you leave? What was that journey like for you? Maybe you're an almost done. Uh, you're still showing up on Sunday mornings, but you're having questions about that. Maybe your leader, maybe even a pastor, maybe a member, uh, would love to hear about your story. Um, comments that you have about the podcast that I've done so far, and questions that you'd like to ask. Topics about the revolution you'd like to see me deal with. Again, two ways to get feedback. One is if you're listening to this on the, the Anchor podcast site, so it's uh, anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M, um, there's a button you can push called message. If you just push that, you can record a message to me, to the listeners of this podcast. Love to hear from you. Second way for feedback is my email address, which is uh, john, J-O-H-N dot L-K-1-0 at gmail.com. So for now, this is John White. Delighted to be with you on the journey.